Good morning, church family. It's great to be together with you guys again this morning. If you're visiting for your first time with us, <clears throat> hey, my name is Chad. I'm one of the pastors here. Glad you're visiting with us this morning. I know there's a lot of good churches in this area and region, and I believe God's brought you here, and, and we're a humble people who love the Lord Jesus Christ and, and want to help each other grow in our knowledge and love for him and, and do that together and then go out and share this news. So, so welcome, and we're glad you're here. Uh, as you heard, just read, we're going to continue through our study through the book of Luke. And before we dive in, please join me in a word of prayer. <clears throat> Father, it is a joy to gather again with your people in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit to, to fellowship, to pray, to sing praises to your name. And now, Lord, we turn our hearts and our minds and our attention to your word, your holy and perfect word without error, and pray that you would sanctify us, your people, through it, that we would um, receive again the joy of our salvation. And Lord, I pray for your children in here who have not been experiencing their joy of salvation. I pray that by the Spirit, you'd restore that to their hearts this morning. And I pray for those who've brought here this morning who aren't your children yet, that you would draw them to yourself, that they would hear the voice of the Good Shepherd and turn from their sin and believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and, and adopt, being adopted by you. And we praise you, Lord, for your word and for this church body, this church family that we can be a part of and worship together. And Pray that the thoughts of my mouth and the meditations of my heart and ours would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray it in the name of Christ. Amen. <clears throat> So I've shared a little bit about myself before. I hope you guys won't mind if I do that again this morning. I want to share with you a, a personal experience that I've had. Uh, some of you may remember I love playing hockey. It's one of my passions, ice hockey specifically, and I try to play every Friday at lunchtime in Fort Collins. There's a lunchtime skate, and I love doing that. Um, I love the sport. I don't want to over-spiritualize it and say I'm suffering for Jesus, but I also love it because... Uh, I like building relationships with the hockey players in, in the area, and I've actually been really influenced by my former pastors at the Crossing Church in Fort Collins and by our pastors here to just find something I'm passionate about and do it and build relationship there. And for me, that's hockey. And one of the other amazing joys about playing hockey is that my best friend in the world is also a hockey player and also a pastor at the Crossing Church in Fort Collins. So when I was the pastoral intern at The Crossing in Fort Collins, me and, and his name is Daniel Smith, but his friends call him Smitty. Me and Smitty had played hockey on a Friday lunch, and then we were together. We spent lots of time together because we were working together. We were with someone, and they knew we had just played hockey, and they said, hey, how was hockey? And I said right away, it was horrible. It was awful. And they were like, why? Was it? Did you get hurt, Chad? And I said, No. I, like, I don't even think I scored one goal. I couldn't catch a pass. I couldn't make a pass. I had so many bad turnovers in the defensive zone. And Smitty, being the wonderful friend that he is and the man of God, he Jesus-juked me. Let me teach you really quick what a Jesus-juke is. It's really fun to do your, with your friends who you love a lot. It's when you basically make them feel bad for being such a bad Christian. 
just do this to the people that you love. And, and, and Smitty looks at me and he says, Chad, playing hockey is, is not about how well we play and how many goals we score. Playing hockey is about glorifying God and building relationship with these hockey players who we love so much, many of whom aren't in Christ. And I was like, ouch. And you're right. You're totally right. I had been finding my ultimate joy in, in, in my success, in my performance at the rink, in the, in the wrong thing and not in the right thing, like Smitty said, glorifying God, saying, God, thank you for this gift. I love this gift. I love that I have two arms and two legs and a brain that works that not everyone is so blessed to have, and I can glorify you as I play hockey, and I can build relationships, and I have deep friendships with guys on the rink who aren't in Christ because of it. I wonder how many of you might be doing the same thing in your Christian walk, seeking ultimate joy in the wrong place specifically in fruitfulness, effectiveness, success in your ministry. And, and let me say this, in Christians, you've probably heard it a hundred times, but, but you're in ministry, Christian. You don't have to be standing in my shoes to be in ministry. You don't have to be standing in Chase's shoes or Rachel's shoes. You don't have to be a vocational ministry leader to be in ministry. If you're a Christian, you're in ministry, you're, so so if, if me, one of the pastors, one of the community group leaders, or just a friend asked you, Christian, hey, how's your ministry? Hopefully it wouldn't be a rattling question. Hopefully you know that they're saying like, hey, you're, you're ministering in your neighborhood. You're ministering at the hockey rink. You're ministering at the place you work out at, at the place you work at. How's your ministry? So with that said, maybe you're feeling great or maybe you're feeling discouraged about your relationship with your neighbors or your coworkers, maybe building relationship with them is going really poorly and they don't seem very interested in trying to get to know you or maybe vice versa, they seem really interested in trying to get to know you. Maybe that couple you're ministering to is doing really bad. Maybe you're really concerned for them or maybe they're doing really well and having some breakthroughs and you're feeling really hopeful. Maybe your ministry to your kids is going really well. They seem receptive to the gospel, or maybe they've already repented and believed the gospel, or maybe it's tough. Maybe your kids seem like they don't want anything to do with God right now and hearing from you about the gospel. In all of this, Windsor Community Church, I ask you, how's your joy? Is it, is it fickle? Is it fleeting? Is it an emotional roller coaster? I should say that <clears throat> none of those ministry successes are bad. They're great. The, the successes would be a joy to experience. But is your ultimate joy in those things, in those successes? That word is really important this morning, ultimate joy. In our text this morning, the Lord Jesus tells us where our ultimate joy should be. And spoiler alert, it's not in our ministry successes. Last week, I reminded us of what we've covered in the first nine chapters of Luke. I won't do that again this morning. If you missed last week, I would encourage you to go back and listen. We have a podcast. We put the sermons on YouTube. If you miss a Sunday, you can always hear the sermon to stay caught up. 
but I'll just remind you quickly of what I said last week. We, we looked at the great call of Jesus and the great cost and the great reward. The great call of Jesus is to follow him in total commitment. And the great cost is that there's going to be many people will, will reject us. And there will be a cost of being totally committed to him. It's going to mean discomfort. It's going to affect our relationships. But there's also great reward. There's the reward of a relationship with the living God in the here and now. Joy and reconciliation with God and adoption and intimacy. And in the next life, full forever joy. Seeing him by sight, being with him in the new heavens and the new earth. And in our passage this morning, we'll see the need for total commitment as Jesus sends out 72 of his followers and tells them what to do when they're rejected and where their ultimate joy should be. There's a lot to cover in these 24 verses. We'll see a lot of specific instructions about the seriousness and the joy of the mission. There is a weighty seriousness about the mission. Kingdom laborers are dealing in life and death, eternal life and eternal joy and eternal separation and sadness. But there's also joy, joy in being part of God's redemptive work, yes, but ultimate joy in our own salvation, in being trophies of God's grace. And I believe that's the main point of the passage this morning. That's what I hope you guys will hear. Our ultimate joy as kingdom laborers should be found in our own salvation and not in our ministry successes. I've divided the passage this morning into three parts. Number one, the call to mission, verses 1 through 12. Number two, the seriousness of the mission, verses 13 through 16. And number three, the ultimate joy in mission, verses 17 through 24. One quick thing to note before we dive in, in our debate, potential debate about terminology, this question, should we call every Christian a missionary or just those who are sent to bring the gospel to an unreached people group or to, who are sent out to plant and support local churches? I was told this week that uh, one of my heroes, Charles Spurgeon, said that every Christian should be called a missionary. But there may be some of you who'd say, well, I'd rather prefer to, to say that to the people who are going to the unreached and being sent out. But the reality is that every Christian is called to live missionally and on mission. When Jesus gives the Great Commission in Matthew 28, it's not just for missionaries. That's for every follower of Jesus. So the truth is it's a moot point. And I say that to say that when you just heard verses 1 through 24 read, you might think, oh, this is just for missionaries and I'm not one. But if you're a Christian, you're one. So I'm using missionary for you guys. But sometimes I'll say missionally as well. You with me? Okay. Let's look at the call to mission. In verses 1 through 12, verse 1 says, After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. Jesus now broadens his commissioned disciples. This section is very similar to chapter 9, verses 1 through 6, where he sends out the 12 to proclaim the kingdom of God. And now he's sending 72 And there's a footnote in our ESV Bibles that say, some manuscripts say that it's 70, not 72. 
Some scholars argue that this number represents the 70 nations represented in Genesis chapter 10, which was referring to all the nations. There were 70 of them, and this included all the nations, signifying the commission to go to all the nations of the world, and that all the nations would be included in the mission, reminding them and us that the Christian message will be spread to all nations by all nations. And it also may be that he sends them out two by two in order to be the two witnesses required in the Old Testament, like Deuteronomy 17 and 19. So whether or not it's 70 or 72, and from here on out I'll say the 72 because that's what our ESV says, I would argue that the symbolism is there. And all the commentaries I read agreed that the symbolism of the 70 going out in representation of the 70 nations, all the nations in Genesis 10 is there. Jesus is broadening those he's sending on mission. He's starting the spread of Christianity to all nations and by all nations. And he encourages these 72 to pray for more laborers. Chapter, verse 2 says, And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Jesus yet again uses an agricultural metaphor. The harvest are those whom God may or will save, and laborers are those in the kingdom, part of the kingdom mission, proclaiming the kingdom of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. So part of this mission is to pray for God to send more laborers into the world to reap a harvest of followers. And God won't send before he saves, so we need to pray that God would save his people and therefore send them out into the world. <coughs> So the disciples and we must pray that God would save his people and send them. And we'll see at the end of our passage this morning, Jesus rejoicing in God's sovereignty. And here is another reminder. Laborers in the kingdom must pray that God would save his people and thereby create more kingdom laborers to go into the world and to proclaim the kingdom. And Jesus says that God is the Lord of the harvest. He knows those who are his. He is sovereignly drawing people to himself. Listen to the way Jesus articulates this in John chapter 10, verses 14 through 16. He says, <clears throat> I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay my life down for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will Listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. So they and we need to pray to the sovereign Savior. But the laborers can't just stop at praying. They must go. Verse 3 says, go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Jesus is sending, remember, he's sending these 72 and he tells them to go. They were going into many of the towns and cities that Jesus would be going to. Prayer is great and necessary and required, but the laborers must also go. We can't stay in our prayer closets all day, even though we should spend time in our prayer closets. But as they're going, he warns them that they'll be vulnerable. They'll be like sheep in the midst of wolves. This forces them to stay dependent on their shepherd, the shepherd who cares for them, 
the shepherd who can turn wolves into sheep, or to put it more accurately theologically, the shepherd who shows that the apparent wolves are actually his lost sheep who he's drawing to himself. We too must be completely dependent on our shepherd to draw his lost people to himself, his lost sheep to himself. Then he gives more instruction in verses 4 through 12, in which I believe some principles apply to us, but that these verses are not prescriptive for modern missions. <clears throat> it's important to note this principle quickly here, and I haven't totally mastered it. I'm still learning and growing, but there is a principle of biblical interpretation we would call, it's the difference between prescription and description. If you think about it this way, when you get a prescription, although we don't enunciate it that well when it comes to the doctor, we call it a prescription, but the doctor gives us a pill or something to take, and we need to do that. He prescribes this to us, and it's strongly recommended, if not commanded. And the Lord Jesus Christ is Lord, and he commands. He doesn't just strongly recommend, he commands, so we see prescriptions in the Bible that are things, commands that we're supposed to do. But then there's also description in the Bible, and it's just that, a description of something, not necessarily something we have to do. We do this implicitly. Whether you've known this or not, you do this. So when you're reading the, the story in the Garden of Gethsemane, and the bad guys are coming in to arrest Jesus, and Peter whips out his sword and hacks an ear off, we don't read that and say, well, anyone who who comes after our Lord Jesus, we're going to hack an ear off. We, just, we read that as a description of what Peter did. It wasn't right, but I, I know I'm not supposed to do that. So as Jesus tells them in verse 4, carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, greet no one on the road, that is descriptive, describing what Jesus told them to do, but it's not a direct application to modern missions. It's not a prescription for modern missionaries. They like we saw with the sending out of the 12, were to be wholly dependent on the Lord to provide for them on their mission. So it isn't wrong that modern missionaries, the ones who are sent out here in this situation, it's not wrong for them to secure funding, to bring backpacks and suitcases full of clothes and an extra pair of shoes. In fact, we would say it's wise and prudent my, my dear friends, David and Nicole, our, our missionaries sent out from this church, and they secured funding, and they secured housing, and I'll bet you they bought, brought an extra pair of shoes, all while still acknowledging that they must be dependent on the Lord. It's not as if David and Nicole or we aren't dependent on the Lord. We're thankful for all the gifts he gives, the backpack full of clothes and the extra pair of shoes, but it's not wrong for us to procure those. These 72, they were also to recognize the urgency of mission. And that's why they weren't to greet anyone on the road. It's not because Jesus didn't want them to be friendly. No friendliness in the kingdom of God. It's because they had an urgent task at hand. And, and they shouldn't waste time in pleasantries. So again, it's not wrong for the modern missionary, us, to greet people on the road. But we too must remember the principle, the urgency of of the task, the mission before us calls for urgency. He then tells them in the next verses uh, to look for one place to stay. 
not to bounce around as if they're looking for a better host or better food or more comfort. They were to stay in one place and eat whatever the host offered, reminding them that they deserve some physical provision amidst their spiritual labors. The laborers deserve his wages. And they were also to enjoy the peace that they had with their generous host. It seems when they would enter a house If the host was already a Christian or at least receptive to the gospel, they would offer a divine blessing, even using the word shalom, and their peace would rest there at the house. But if the person was not receptive to the gospel message or to them, then their peace would return to them. And I don't think this aspect of giving and taking peace is prescriptive for us today, but there's a principle from it that we can understand and that probably many of us have experienced I think many of us have experienced this idea of peace, even though I would argue the descriptiveness of it over and against the prescriptiveness of it. We have experienced the peace of having dinner with a fellow Christian couple whom we barely know. You guys have experienced that probably? Audrey and I, that's my wife. We've been at this church for a year and a half, and many of you have invited us into your homes to have a meal with you. We've had you into our home Even though we didn't know you, but we know that you love the Lord Jesus Christ, and you know that we love the Lord Jesus Christ, and there's just a peace we experience, a shalom that we experience together, isn't there? And we've also experienced a peace with people who aren't Christians, yet who we resonate deeply with and and experience a certain peace with. And yet... I don't believe that part of the missionary task now is only or primarily to share the gospel with people who seem peaceful towards us or our message. And there will be those who aren't peaceful towards us or our message. There will be those who ask us never to speak again about Jesus or or stop talking to us altogether. And I I bet there's a lot of you in here who have experienced that. Remember Romans 12, 18, the Apostle Paul says this, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. <clears throat> I have a good, another good friend who's in ministry, and he has a saying that's really impacted me. He says, Chad, I'm never going to fire anyone. He's the intern at the crossing right now, actually. And he, and he says, Chad, I don't think as Christians we should ever fire anyone. Like, you're fired. I'm done with you. I don't want to talk to you anymore. If a relationship is going to be severed, let, let other people fire us. And I think what he's saying, what he's illustrating is Romans 12, 18. As much as it depends on us, I'm not going to fire you. I want to live peaceably with you. And if you fire me, that's okay. But I think, brothers and sisters, we should still keep our hearts open to them coming back to us and saying, hey, I'm sorry, can we, can we start in a relationship again? I think we should always be open to that. I believe Jesus would have us share our lives and share the gospel with any and all, knowing that there may be some or much rejection in it, like we talked about last week. He goes on in verse 9, he says to them, heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Now, healing and proclaiming the kingdom weren't all that they were supposed to do because we see in verse 17 that they were also casting out demons, I believe healing and proclaiming were shorthand for all of the work associated with being a kingdom laborer. They were to proclaim the kingdom, heal, cast out demons, all of which are signs of the inbreaking of this upside-down kingdom. But the truth is, 
as we see throughout Scripture, proclamation is primary. Healings and exorcisms validated the message. They show that the message is from God, was and is from God. The message is the main thing. And finally, in this section, Jesus tells them what to do when they're rejected. Verses 10 through 12, he says, But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to your feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Jesus reminds the 72 of the weight of their message and the coming judgment for those who reject him. If a town rejected them, they were to shake off the dust that was clinging to their feet as a sign that declares their separation from the city. And then they were to make one more proclamation that the the kingdom of God had come near. I think there is an application for us. I don't think we literally have to wipe off their dust in front of someone. But if someone rejects us, I think the Lord would have us move on to say, okay, like if you want me to stop trying to build a relationship with you and share this Jesus person with you, I will. And again, we don't need to fire them, but I think the Lord uses rejection to move us on, to keep spreading this message, to going out into the field, seeking the harvest for the Lord. And Jesus ends this section by saying that the towns and cities that reject him will suffer worse punishment than Sodom, the ancient Gentile city infamous for its sin, which then even became a symbol and a euphemism for unrighteousness, which shows them the seriousness of the mission. We see that in verses 13 through 16. The mission is serious for many reasons. But from these verses, we'll see it's serious because judgment is coming for those who reject Jesus and because of the authority that Jesus' messengers have. In these verses, we'll see Jesus pronounce woes on unrepentant cities. Listen again to verses 13 through 15. He says, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works had been done In you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. This isn't the first time in Luke that we've seen woes. We saw this earlier in chapter 6 when he shared the Beatitudes and the woes. The the definition of the word woe is an exclamation of pain and pity for the misfortune that awaits someone in a certain condition. Woes are pronouncements of coming judgment unless there's divine intervention. The mission is serious. Nothing less than divine judgment is on the line. And Jesus starts by pronouncing woes on Chorazin and Bethsaida. These were cities in the Galilean region where the response to Jesus and his work was poor. He had done many mighty works in them. And it seems that overall they didn't accept his message. They didn't repent and believe. And he tells them that if he had done 
those works in the wicked Gentile cities of Tyre and Sidon that he had done in those cities, they would have repented way before. The people of Tyre and Sidon would have repented way before you, Chorazin and Bethsaida. Therefore, he says that it will be more bearable on the judgment day for Tyre and Sidon than for Chorazin and Bethsaida. One commentator puts it like this, a form of prophetic reversal is present for these wicked Old Testament cities will be better off than cities that should have responded to God's kingdom offer. The current generation is less responsive than these notoriously wicked generations of past ages. To reject the kingdom of God is the most serious of sins. Next, he turns his sights on Capernaum, the city where he based his ministry after leaving his hometown of Nazareth. And he basically says the same thing. Capernaum, you've been found wanting because the majority of the people there did not accept Jesus. Judgment is coming. I believe that. Every Christian in here believes that. Woes are coming. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we must continue to plead with people to turn to Jesus. If you're in here this morning and you're not a Christian, I'm genuinely pleading with you to believe in Jesus Christ. At least consider him seriously. He is the Son of God. He is the Savior. He did live a perfect life in your place. He did die a death on the cross and bore the wrath of God. And, and if we repent, if you repent of your sins and believe in Jesus, you will be saved. And that's the good news. That's what we call the gospel, that we believe as Christians. But on the other side, and I'm not trying to scare you or preach fire and brimstone to you, but I actually believe in fire and brimstone, that judgment's coming, that woes are coming. Please, just please, consider Jesus. Come talk to me after the service, or I can introduce you to one of our other pastors, or talk to the person who invited you. I don't think, by the way, that if you get saved, if you repent and believe in Jesus, that I get a bigger mansion in heaven. We don't believe that. You're not a notch on the belt. I love you. The Christians in this church love you. We believe that there is eternal joy or eternal separation offered. And, and we don't want to see anyone separated from the living God. <clears throat> Second reason the mission is serious is because of the reality of the authority that messengers of Jesus have. He says in verse 16, the one who hears you hears me and the one who rejects you rejects me and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. That's an amazing reality. What he's saying is this, his messengers speak for him. Anyone who rejects us rejects Jesus. And the one who rejects Jesus rejects God the Father. I'm prone to dive into some apologetics and talk about why Christianity is so unique and the only way of salvation is through Christianity. And I don't have time. It's already going to be a long sermon. But the only way to the Father is through Jesus Christ. It's the only way. So these 72 and all who have followed Jesus before us and we were representatives. Another word the Bible uses is that we're ambassadors for the triune God. 
That's serious. That's weighty. As we go into the world where we live, work, learn, and play, and we're being faithful proclaimers, we're God's ambassadors. We're his representatives. And when people hear us proclaim the kingdom of God, they're hearing God. And when they receive us and our message, they're receiving God. And when they reject us and our message, they're rejecting God. So we've seen this call to mission as the 72 are sent out, the seriousness of the mission. And finally, let's look at the ultimate joy in the mission. Verses 17 through 24. Under this point, we'll see the call for ultimate joy in our salvation and not our ministry success. And then we'll see Jesus' joy in God's sovereignty in salvation. So the 72 return with joy, saying this, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he told them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. These 72 are full of joy that they have experienced great ministry success. Even the demons were subject to them in Jesus' name. And then Jesus makes that statement about seeing Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And again, there's more debate about what that means. Some people think, was, was it a vision? Was it a reference to something that happened in the past? Is it a prophetic declaration? None of the commentators I read seem to have a convincing reason for their interpretation. And to be honest with you guys, neither do I. But can we zoom out? And I think there's a point. The ministry of Jesus through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, and him ushering in, inaugurating the kingdom of God, and his ministry through us, his followers, spells defeat for Satan. You see that in other places like Colossians. Satan is defeated through the ministry of Jesus Christ and his followers. And then he reminds the 72 of the authority he's given them, power over evil, Nothing will be able to hurt them. And yet, and I'm going to read it again, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. I believe that verse is the main point of this whole passage. Our ultimate joy as kingdom laborers, should be found in our own salvation and not in our ministry success. Brothers and sisters, this is a, a deep and comforting and has been for me this week and especially this morning, a joy-producing truth. Of course we want to see ministry success as a church and as individuals. We want to see our kids believe in Jesus and follow him passionately, despite the cost. We want to see our friends and loved ones saved. We want to see them believe in Jesus. We want our community groups to grow strong in the Lord and fruitful in their mission. 
But our ultimate joy should not be rooted in those successes because they may come or they may not. What if, what if we get this calling or, or don't even realize it, but what if we're gonna be like a, a Jeremiah and just spend our lives in, as kingdom proclaimers and never see any fruit? Are we okay with that? How's our joy gonna be if we never see any fruit ever, any success, and yet we're being faithful to be proclaimers? The successes may come or they may not, but the eternal truth and the ultimate source of our joy is that our names are written in heaven. Revelation 13.8 describes it this way. There's that, it's saying that the people on earth will worship the beast, but everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slain. The only people who won't worship the beast, their names have been written in the book of life of the lamb who was slain. That was written before the foundation of the world. Brothers and sisters, our names aren't just in the book. They've been there for forever. You have been in the heart and the mind of the triune God for all eternity. And we can't even totally grasp what that means. But you need to know this, you are, you are personally known and loved and cherished by God. And your eternal presence before him is certain. As the hymn says, your, your name is graven on his hands. Your name is written on his heart. That is what should give us ultimate joy. That is the joy we can hold in our hearts as we live on mission. <clears throat> there will be some fruitful, successful seasons, and there will be some really hard, not only unfruitful, but contrary seasons, seasons that seem the weeds are growing faster than we can take them down, even though we're tending the vine so faithfully. But if our ultimate joy is rooted in our ministry success, it will be an emotionally exhausting life. And I hope this is sweet for you guys. I believe it is. But if you let me just get really personal, this has been really sweet for me this week and this morning. Because you can tell, and I know a lot of you, I'm a young man. I'm still kind of new in ministry, and I'm dreaming about, Lord, give me 40 years of faithful, fruitful ministry. I'd be lying to you if I didn't say I want to be successful in this. For God's glory, I think mostly, there's taints of sin in here still. But I'm, I'm doing myself and you guys a disservice if my ultimate joy is rooted in a fruitful ministry and not that my name is written in the book of life. I think that's a special word to our pastors in here as well. Men, if you're in here, I don't see any of you right now, but I'm going to say it anyway, again, going off notes, but um, many of you know that Pastor Dan is, is going to step down. The Lord's calling him to step down soon. I don't know when. Don't, I, don't, I don't know when. Dan doesn't know when, in the next 12 months or something. And Dan's probably going to be prone to think about his legacy, isn't he? 
a 17-year career here as the pastor here, and he's had a lot of successes. And I said this to him in first service, but I want you guys to hear, like, our prayer for Pastor Dan should be, Dan, we're thankful for the successes you've seen. I mean, I've seen his heart in the last year and a half, but more than that, Dan, your name is written in the book of life. Your name is written in heaven. Like, may your joy be there and not in the amazing and fruitful ministry that God gave you. Finally, uh, we'll look at, sorry. Finally, we'll look at Jesus' joy as he lives out his own teaching. For he too is joyful to the Father for our salvation. Verses 21 through 24. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. That sounded familiar, didn't it? A lot like the sermon series our PLI guys preached to us from 1 Corinthians. The upside down wisdom and power of God. That God reveals these things to the unwise, and he hides it from the wise and the understanding, Jesus rejoices, not just in his followers' salvation, but in God's sovereignty in it. In the Holy Spirit, he thanks the Father for hiding the things of the kingdom of God from the wise and understanding in a worldly sense and revealed them to little children. Literally in the Greek, it's babies. The babies are those who are helpless unwise and wholly dependent. Now, obviously, there are exceptions. God's, the gospel's for everyone. God saves sinners, all kinds of sinners. He saves those who are wise and understanding in worldly ways. But it seems generally in God's economy, he saves often the weak and the powerless and the needy. And that's God's gracious will. Jesus goes on in verse 22 to say some really important things about himself. He says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and, not one, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. In other words, Jesus has all the authority in the world, equal to the authority of the Father. And knowledge of the Son is intimately tied to the Father, and knowledge of the Father is intimately tied to the Son. To know the Son is to know the Father, and to know the Father is to know the Son. And to know either one or the other is to know neither. And the only way people can know the Father savingly is through the Son, and only if, by the Holy Spirit, the Son reveals the Father to them. God is sovereign in salvation and in revelation. And the fact that the disciples get to see Jesus physically and spiritually, Jesus says, it makes them blessed. That last verse, it says, Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see, for I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. And even though we haven't seen Jesus physically yet, by his spirit, he's revealed the Father to us and saved us. 
If we know God, it's because God drew us to himself by the Holy Spirit and gave, gave us eyes to see God is holy and Jesus is Savior and my sin has separated me and Jesus is the way we've repented and believed. So let me zoom out. Let's, let's consider all these 24 verses together. and Land the plane. God has called each of us, all of us as Christians to go, to be missionaries or to live missionally where we live, work, learn, and play. There is so much to this mission. We need to be dependent on the Lord to provide for us, to save his people, which he will. We need to pray and to proclaim, and we need to remember the urgency of the task. We also need to remember the seriousness of the mission. We're dealing in life and death, eternal salvation or separation, and God will judge the unrepentant. We need to remember that we are representatives and ambassadors. But ultimately, dear saints, ultimately we need to remember that our joy should be found more in our own salvation than our ministry success. If God grants ministry success, praise him. Thank the Lord and give him glory for his great gifts. He's the giver of every good gift. But if he doesn't, praise him for his goodness and his sovereignty and the fact that your name is written in the book of life. True joy, dear brothers and sisters, is not ultimately found in what we do for God but what God has done for us. Let's pray. We praise you, Father. We praise you, Jesus. We praise you, Holy Spirit. Triune God, three in one. We praise you for what you've done for us in Christ. God, I praise you for restoring my joy this week and this morning and this message. And I pray that, that you would have done that to many of your children in this room. Restore to them the joy of their salvation, the reality that their name is written in your book of life that you've had there from all eternity. Lord, I pray that for your lost sheep in here that you would be drawing them to yourself, even here and now. That you would reveal to them Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit and you would grant them faith and repentance. Lord, I pray that as we go from here and seek to live on mission, that that's our joy would be rooted in our salvation and that we would be free from the weight of finding identity and, and ultimate joy in, in success. Lord, may you, may you grant the success, but may we hold our hands open with those successes. You are great, Lord, and greatly to be praised. And it is our joy to, to speak of you to the nations and pray that you would use this church to do so. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.